0: We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org.
1: We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. We will be in Psalm chapter 7 and 8. Psalm chapter 7, a meditation of David, which he sang to the Lord concerning the words of Cush, a Benjamite. O Lord my God, in you I put my trust. Save me from all those who persecute me, and deliver me, lest they tear me like a lion, rending me in pieces while there is none to deliver. O Lord my God, if I have done this, if there is iniquity in my hands, if I have repaid evil to him who is at peace with me, or have plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue me and overtake me. Yes, let him trample my life to the earth, and lay my honor in the dust. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up because of the rage of my enemies. Rise up for me to the judgment you have commanded. So the congregation of the people shall surround you for their sakes. Therefore, return on high. The Lord shall judge the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness. And according to my integrity within me. Oh, let the wickedness of the wicked come to an end, but establish the just, for the righteous God tests the hearts and mind. My defense is of God, who saves the upright in heart. God is a just judge, and God is angry with the wicked every day. If he does not turn back, he will sharpen his sword. He bends his bow and makes it ready. He also prepares for himself instruments of death. He makes his arrows into fiery shafts. Behold, the wicked bring forth iniquity. Yes, he conceives trouble and brings forth falsehood. He made a pit and dug it out and has fallen into the ditch which he made. His trouble shall return Upon his own head, and his violent dealings shall come down on his own crown. I will praise the Lord according to his righteousness, and will sing praise to the name of the Lord Most High. Psalm 8 to the chief musician of the instrument of Gath, a psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth! who have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you have ordained strength because of your enemies that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man, that you visit him for you have made him a little lower than the angels and you have crowned him with glory and honor you have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands you have put all things under his feet all sheep and oxen even the beasts of the field the birds of the air and the fish of the sea that passed through the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. Good evening. Good evening.
0: Uh, Feeble efforts. That's what I feel like this evening may be, but I trust the Lord will still work. uh, Feeling a little under the weather, but I trust pray that it won't be a distraction to the Word of God as it's shared this evening. And so we entrust that to the Lord here. I invite you to turn to Ezra chapter 1 this evening. Ezra chapter 1. As you turn there, I'll just uh, give a brief uh, summary of how we started out last week in this new study in the book of Ezra. If you weren't here last week, we kind of did a backdrop to the book of Ezra Ezra kind of starting all the way back at the captivity of the northern tribe of Israel to the time in the context of which Ezra is being written, at least the events therein. And uh, we said that in the wake of the toppling of the Babylonian Empire, which was probably sometime late uh, 539 B.C., Cyrus makes a proclamation and we have that recorded here in Ezra as well as in the Chronicles as well, which we'll mention later on. The Israelites have now been in captivity for nearly 70 years, if you kind of start that timeline with the first deportation in 605 B.C. And this was prophesied by the prophet Jeremiah that this would take place, 70-year captivity. And here in Ezra chapter 1, verse 1, Ezra record, records that it was in the first year of Cyrus, King of Persia, to give us background to the events of those which were are to about to be described here in Ezra Chapter One, I titled uh, our message this evening Cyrus's Decree and the First Returnees," which is really what Ezra chapter one uh, gives us a description of, but the truth that I have pulled from this uh, this passage this evening is this, that God is faithful to his word and often uses providential means to accomplish his purposes. And I think we see that here in Ezra chapter one. Now, as I mentioned, uh, Ezra records that it was the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, but it's well attested that Cyrus became at least a vassal king in 559 BC. So you may, if you know that history, you may be asking this question, why does Ezra refer to it as Cyrus's first year? Well, Ezra writes from the point of view of Cyrus's victorious defeat of the Babylonian Empire. That's really kind of the where the, where the rise of the, uh, the the Persian Empire begins with the toppling of the Babylonian Empire. And that didn't begin in, or happen until 539, the year in which Ezra is uh, referring to here. So, you know, it's not as if uh, Ezra got his dates mixed up. He's, he's looking in, from the perspective of the Babylonian fall, uh, Empire and its falling, as well as this proclamation which Ezra, excuse me, Cyrus has written. And so in this way, then, Ezra can accurately refer to it as the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, as the background to Ezra chapter 1 here. And we'll begin first this evening at looking at the cause for the proclamation, the cause for the proclamation, and we see this in verse 1. It says here, and let me read all the way to, uh, through verse 11, which is the whole chapter which we'll look at here this evening, and then we'll look at verse 1 particularly to start out. It says in Ezra 1 verse 1 now in the first year of Cyrus king of Persia that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus king of Persia mm-hmm. so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing saying thus says Cyrus king of Persia all the kingdoms of the earth the Lord God of heaven has given me and he has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah, who is among you of all his people? May his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord God of Israel. He is God, which is in Jerusalem, and whoever is left in any place where he dwells, let the men of his place help him with silver and gold with goods and livestock, besides the free-will offerings for the house of God. Which is in Jerusalem. Verse five. Then the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin, in the priests and the Levites, with all those excuse me, with all whose spirits God had moved, arose to go up and build the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. And all those who were around them encouraged them with articles of silver and gold, with goods and livestock and with precious things. Besides all that was willingly offered, King Cyrus also brought out the articles of the house of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken from Jerusalem, and put it in the temple of his gods. And Cyrus, king of Persia, brought them out by the hand of Mithridath, the treasurer, and counted them out to Sheshbazzar, the prince of of Judah. This is the number of them, that is, the articles. 30 gold platters, 1,000 silver platters, 21 knives, 30 gold basins, 410 silver basins of similar kind, and 1,000 other articles. All the articles of gold and silver were 5,400. All these Shesh Bazar took with the captives who were brought from Babylon to Jerusalem. Looking now back at verse 1, we see here the cause for the proclamation. The proclamation, we learn, fulfills the word of the Lord, as Ezra records here. And from the onset, we see that Ezra explains the cause for this proclamation in terms of the divine will of God. Ezra's view of God's sovereignty and faithfulness to his word shapes the way He views these events in history. And he explains these events in such a way to help his readers, the Israelites in their time, but also us today, in such a way to help his readers view these events in the same manner. We're supposed to see that from the onset that this is God who has caused this proclamation to go forth, not simply an act of Cyrus Ezra is not merely concerned about the facts of history, though he does record them accurately, but he is more concerned with the ordering and purpose of these events. What did these events accomplish? How did they come about? What was the cause of of them? And so in that way, Ezra's foremost objective then, here in the first verse of the book, is to explain that Cyrus' decision was so that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. That's the purpose. That's the divine ordering. The word of the Lord typically refers to divine revelation that is disclosed to one of God's prophets. You find that kind of phrase all throughout the Old Testament. The word of the Lord came to, you know, Isaiah or Jeremiah or some other prophet. It also came to Abraham as well, Moses, other uh, Old Testament saints. We looked at last time, and we'll just remind ourselves, that Jeremiah prophesied of the end of a 70-year captivity, the destruction of Babylon and the return of God's people to the land. We see this in Jeremiah 25, verses 11 and 12. We Looked at that last time, so if you'd like to look at it again, you can do that later, as well as in jeremiah twenty nine ten but and often you know people uh, will look to those passages as the fulfillment of the word that is spoken about here in ezra one one and I think that is a part of the word that Ezra is referring to, this word given by Jeremiah in chapters twenty five and twenty nine but Notice in the context here that the word that Ezra has in mind seems to not relate only to the above passages, that is chapters 25 and 29, but specifically to God's stirring up Cyrus to make a proclamation. So it's not simply uh, the word that refers to the end of the 70-year captivity, the destruction of Babylon and the building of the temple, but the word that refers to God stirring up Cyrus to make this proclamation. In which case, Ezra may have at the forefront of his mind, actually, Jeremiah chapter 51. And uh, let me turn there. And uh, you are welcome to do that as well, if you'd like, Jeremiah chapter 51. In uh, chapter 51, in verse 1, it says, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up against Babylon, against those who dwell in Lebkame, a destroying wind. The uh, CSB version puts it this way, I am about to rouse the spirit of a destroyer against Babylon. Do you see now the connection between the stirring up of Cyrus That's uh, recorded in Ezra 1 and what Jeremiah writes concerning the destruction of Babylon here in Jeremiah 51.1. And he goes on to explain what this destroying wind uh, will do, what it will accomplish in defeating Babylon. And we could really read the rest of chapter 51. It's very interesting, but for sake of time, we'll leave that for some other time, or you can read it later this evening or sometime this week. And I think then this echoes the more explicit reference to Cyrus by the prophet Isaiah. You remember in Isaiah 44, 28, as well, in, as, well as in uh, chapter 45, Isaiah actually mentions by name the, the, uh, Cyrus, king of Persia, as the one who God will use, his, his shepherd, to, to uh, defeat Babylon as well as to Cause the people of Israel to be able to return to the land. So, just something interesting to think about, you know, in light of the fact that many point to uh, Jeremiah chapter uh, Jeremiah chapter 25 and 29 as the fulfillment. Certainly, that is part of it, but I think also uh, Ezra has chapter 51 in mind as well, as it relates to the stirring up of this destroyer, which we know from Isaiah to be King Cyrus. And that Ezra emphasizes that this proclamation fulfills the word of the Lord should cause us to consider the truth that God does keep his word as a point of application this evening. He is faithful and does not, we might say, renege on his promises. If God says it will happen, it will happen. And we, we see this with other uh, uh, prophetic passages which have come to pass the virgin birth the, the uh, you know, the crucifixion of Christ, the suffering lamb, all these passages have been fulfilled. <coughs> the fact that God has fulfilled then his word in the past, like here in Ezra 1, as well as in uh, Isaiah 53, uh, in Isaiah 7, and all that reg- regarding the, uh, the virgin birth, the fact that God has fulfilled his word in the past then should give us joy and confidence that God will keep His word concerning things which have yet to come to pass. Is that not true? I think of First uh, Thessalonians uh, chapter five, verse twenty-three to twenty-four, as it relates to something that is a guarantee for us as believers. Not exactly like you know the prophetic. Uh, Fulfillment of Ezra 1, but certainly something that God has promised to his people, that is the church. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 23 writes, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Then verse 24, He who calls you is faithful, who also will do it do all those things which are mentioned in verse 23. And so the same God who fulfills the word of the, uh, spoken by Jeremiah also has promised and will be faithful to his promise to sanctify us completely, to glorify us in, uh, in some day in the future. And so we look to the promises which have been fulfilled as a means of confidence and assurance that God will also keep his word In the future. Now, going back to our text here in Ezra 1, we see that God now providentially works through Cyrus to fulfill this word. The point that Ezra wants his readers to understand is that this proclamation should not be accredited to Cyrus's, we might say, liberal foreign policies. What I mean by that? Well, we mentioned last time that it was often the case that Cyrus was very generous, very kind, very lenient toward nations which he conquered, and that he would, uh, he would not disrupt the kind, of the, the, the kind of civil lifestyle, the religion practiced in that nation, the gods that were worshipped. He would, he would allow them to continue on worshipping those gods. And so, you know, in that sense, uh, you know, he had somewhat we might call liberal foreign policies. But Ezra's point is that we should not accredit what's happened to that fact though it was the case that Cyrus often acted like this uh, with other foreign nations. Instead, Ezra wants us to learn and to understand that it uh, should be accredited to God's providential work. A secular historian would not see God's hand in this event. And we might say other events in scripture. Oh, simply it just happened. Coincidence, you know? Mere luck, maybe survival of the fittest, whatever you may call it, whatever they would call it. But that's not how we are to view it. And Ezra is helping us to see that, to learn that, to recognize that very fact. And the same goes for the Israelites in their time. The Israelites could have easily overlooked this in the moment, that this is simply Cyrus's kind of uh, generous behavior. But no, Ezra wants them to realize and to learn that God has not forgotten his promises to Israel, which were spoken by the mouth of the prophet Jeremiah. God indeed is the one who is working behind the scenes and really at the forefront of the scene as well. Ezra wants his audience to view this not as mere coincidence, or good luck for the Israelites. Yes, as we said, history does reveal that Cyrus made proclamations concerning other people's gods, but we're to interpret this event in view of God's sovereignty and his providence. Uh, It comes to mind Proverbs chapter 21, verse 1, where it tells of the fact that God, uh, the heart of a king, is like rivers in the hand of, of God. He turns it wherever he wishes. It's kind of a paraphrase of the verse, but... You can look at it later. And that is the fact here, that God was in control of these affairs. In fact, he was even working in the heart of Cyrus to cause it to turn where he purposed, where he willed. This should not be surprising, as God often used rulers and nations to fulfill his purposes. Sometimes in a negative way, in a sense, in that he would use other nations to to judge uh, the nation of Israel to, uh, for their disobedience, but at other times, as is the case here, to in a more encouraging way, to defeat a foreign nation and allow them to return, to punish them for perhaps their unjust, uh, unjust uh, and overly you know, harsh uh, uh, conquering of the nation of Israel. Now, when we talk about God's providential work, I have a note here, you know, what does that exactly mean? We might define providence, God's providence in this way, in that it is God's activity throughout history and in in the present as well, in providing through secondary causation for the needs of human beings. So what do I mean by that? That is to say, rather than performing a miracle, like, you know, providing manna, or parting the Red Sea, God uses natural, or we might say ordinary means, to accomplish his purposes. That's not to say he's not involved at all. You know, he is the primary cause still, but he uses secondary means or ordinary means to accomplish his purposes, and this is one such case. Another example might be uh, like we were reading in the book of Ruth. You know, the way that the, the author of Ruth's Ruth kind of puts it, he kind of lends his hand or tips his hand to the fact that Ruth ended up in Boaz's field, not just, you know, mere luck, but by God's providence, he led it to be that way, he caused it to be that way. So that might be one example. Or perhaps you look back at uh, the, uh, the selling of Joseph to Egypt. What looked like a terrible kind of event, God used in his providence to save his people and to cause them to not, you know, be extinguished. Well, the fact that God is working behind the scenes here in Ezra 1, as we are learning, this is evident in that Ezra explains that the cause of this proclamation should be attributed to this divine act, that the Lord stirred up the spirit of King Cyrus the word uh, translated stirred up can mean to excite or put into motion or start to work. This act of God was prophesied of in Isaiah thirteen seventeen, as well as in 41, 2, in verse 25 of chapter 41. But we need to be careful in, in how we interpret this or understand the meaning of this, that God you know, put into motion or started this work. One should not equate this work, perhaps, with the ministry of the Holy Spirit, as if God put his spirit within, um, within King Cyrus. No, that's not what it says. It says he stirred up the spirit of Cyrus. So we don't equate this with the ministry of the Holy Spirit in Old Testament saints, like, for instance, regeneration or indwelling or conviction or some other ministry of the Holy Spirit. That's not what's going on here. The text tells us that he stirred up the spirit of King Cyrus. The word spirit can have many different meanings depending on the context. And in this context, it simply means the heart or mind of Cyrus, the kind of inner being, the immaterial part of him, his, the control center of the inner being, which we often call the mind, though you know, scripture often calls the heart. But really, you know, it's from the mind uh, that uh, you know, actions are created and thoughts are created, though you know, we might say the seedbed is the heart. Out of the heart, man speaks and so forth. And so the idea here is that the Lord caused uh, Cyrus in his inner being, in his mind, to want to do this, to have an ambition to make this proclamation, Cyrus, being moved with strong ambition to issue this proclamation, decides then to put it in writing and disseminate it to the entire kingdom. We see this uh, in uh, the end of verse 1. It says, uh, The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom, and also put it in writing. Now, the book of Ezra contains two decrees or edicts of Cyrus. There's this one, of course, in Ezra 1, 2 uh, through 4, as well as a second in Ezra chapter 6 in verses 3 to 4. And, of course, we'll look at that in, uh, in the future, Lord permitting. This one was, uh, we know, is, was written in Hebrew and probably many other languages and published by heralds throughout Babylon perhaps something like uh, what we see in Daniel chapter 3 where uh, the golden statue is created and then Nebuchadnezzar has a herald who goes out and proclaims this to the people you know calls them summons them to come in a similar way then you know this probably wasn't you know recorded on you know thousands of pieces of paper and you know disseminated to the entire kingdom rather heralds would go out and proclaim this and then there was an official copy probably kept, you know, at uh, at the uh, you know, in the kingdom in the court. Well, as uh, we noted here, or uh, as we note here in 2nd Chronicles chapter 36, 22 to 23, we also find the same proclamation recorded. And so really this is kind of picking up where 2nd Chronicles leaves off. This often leads people to believe that Ezra may have been the author of First and Second Chronicles because of how it kind of just perfectly transitions here in chapter 1 of Ezra. Well, now we come to the point in which we have to look at this proclamation. And we see here the content of the proclamation in verses 2 to 4. And we could separate the proclamation into three parts. At least that's how I've decided to do that. Uh, Maybe others have looked at it differently. But first we see the acknowledgement of of the God of Israel in verse 2. Look with me there. Cyrus writes this, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, All the kingdoms of the earth the Lord God of heaven has given me, and he has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. We could begin with maybe a positive evaluation of this statement here in verse 2. Cyrus acknowledges the existence of God, this God, calling him by the titles of the Lord of Heaven and the God of Israel. He acknowledges that this is the God who dwells in Jerusalem, probably because he's aware that this was the nation's capital, at least previously, before it was destroyed, as well as where the temple once existed, the place of worship of, this, of Israel's God. However, you know, that's perhaps the most positive we can, thing we can say about this statement. What I mean by this is that none of this should imply that Cyrus believed God to be the one true God. Cyrus worshipped a pantheon of gods and acknowledged many gods and often attributed his success to other gods as well, not just the god of the Israelites. As an aside, uh, I might mention that this is why I am often cautious, and perhaps we all should be this way, cautious to jump to the conclusion that simply because someone uh, acknowledges God as, you know, credits him for something that he's done in their life. We see this often, you know, of politicians or sports figures and celebrities who will do this. You know, I want to thank God for, you know, something he's given me, some success. And I'm often cautious to jump to the conclusion that simply because they acknowledge God that they are a Christian. That's often not the case. Maybe they do believe, but I cannot, and I encourage you to do the same, cannot encourage you to assume that simply on the basis of them using his name, that they are a follower of the one true God. I think that's the case here with Cyrus. Yes, he acknowledges God, but we know from other places that he worshiped other gods. He did not see him as the one true living God, but one God among many. And that's often the case with the secular world, who may acknowledge God but does not see him as Lord and Savior, the only true living God. In the case of Cyrus, it is more likely that he wanted the blessing of Israel's God on his kingdom. So there was a self-motivation here in acknowledging God and, and putting out this proclamation. And in this way, this proclamation emphasizes what some call a transactional theology especially of foreign nations what do i mean by that that is do something good for a god for example build him a house you know a temple a place of worship and he will bless me and that was often the case with with the foreign gods you know we have to appease the god if we've done something bad or we give some kind of gift to the god in order that something good will come of that and so we call this transactional theology, and that's not what we believe how God operates. He does bless. He does punish, but it's not you know, simply based on things we do for him. If that were the case, then you know, we would not have our Savior because there's nothing good enough we can do to uh, cause him to die for us. No, God died for us. Christ died for us because he loved us, not because of some merit on our part. And so it's probably, though, this mindset that Cyrus has, that if I do something good for this God, in turn, I will be blessed. My kingdom will grow and I'll have more victories. This may be Cyrus's purpose in stating that God had appointed him to build a house in Jerusalem for Israel's God then. But despite Cyrus's intent or purpose in his heart, Ezra wants us to see God's divine purpose in it all. God did indeed appoint Cyrus to do this, though ultimately it was God's people who did the laboring to rebuild the temple, as we'll see later on in Ezra. The second part of this proclamation that we see is the permission to return and build the temple. We see this in verse 3. Ezra writes, or excuse me, the proclamation says here, "...who is among you of all his people. May his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah." And build the house of the Lord God of Israel, He is God, which is in Jerusalem. The phrase "Who is among you of all his people," clearly identifies that this proclamation was primarily directed to the people of israel that's you know that was the the, the audience that Cyrus intended. Secondly, the phrase "May his God be with him," though may you know might sound very pious and religious, in a tip of a hat to, you know, the God of Israel, it was often used as a common cultic expression. You know, may your God be with you. You know, may he bless you. Not necessarily pointing to the God of Israel or the one true God, but just, you know, a kind of blessing, a generic blessing upon a person. And it doesn't indicate, then, anything about Cyrus's spirituality at all. The irony, though, is that God would be with his people. You know, there, were, there was more to it than Cyrus understood when he wrote those words, that God indeed would be with his people. And we'll see that uh, fleshed out through the book of Ezra as, as, uh, as the people come up or are faced with opposition. God is with them, helping them along the way. He is with them in their efforts and in their work. The permission to return, we note, was not necessarily a command, but an invitation and encouragement, you know, perhaps at most, to do this. Of course, it would be advantageous for Cyrus if they were to return, as it would provide the labor force required to complete this you know, tall task of building a house for the God of Israel. But to the eye of the faithful, that is, the faithful Jew, the devout Jew, It was more than an invitation or an encouragement. It was the long-awaited opportunity to return to the promised land and restore true worship in Jerusalem. It was a way for the covenant community to demonstrate covenant faithfulness to God. So why would you not want to return? Why would you not want to Follow or you know, heed this invitation and, and to go back to return. The importance of being in the land perhaps may be lost on some of us, that is New Testament believers. You know, why so important to return? As we know from the New Testament and even specifically John four twenty-four, that we can worship God anywhere in spirit and in truth. So Why is it so important that they return? Well, if we understand anything about the Mosaic Covenant, the commands and the blessings therein, we know that being in the land was directly related to being able to fulfill those commands and receive those blessings. That said in another way, those commands and blessings were directly related to the land and worship in the temple. If you wanted to experience those blessings, you had to be in the land to an extent. You had to be worshiping in the temple. And so it was critical to the Jewish community and to the worship of Yahweh to be in the land if they wanted to experience those blessings and obey the commands therein. Thirdly, or the third part of this proclamation that we can note, is the command to make provision for the returnees, and we see this in verse 4. Cyrus writes, And whoever is left in any place where he dwells, let the men of his place help him with silver and gold, with goods and livestock besides the free will offerings for the house of God which is in Jerusalem. Now, there is some debate as to whether the phrase whoever is left in verse 4 refers to Jews who didn't return but decided to stay in Babylon or if it's referring to their Babylonian neighbors you know those who they were leaving behind who were of you know uh, maybe Babylonian or maybe from other some other nation that was taken captive but I believe that it refers to both. It's not an either or. or, I don't think that Cyrus is referring to it. It could refer to Jews who decided to stay behind as well as their Babylonian neighbors. But that may cause you to ask the question, why would any devout Jew not return in light of what we just talked about in relationship to the importance of being in the land in order to fulfill those covenant commands and receive those blessings? But consider some of the complications that may have hindered some devout Jews from returning, you know, instead of, you know, casting too much, you know, uh, harsh words on them for not returning. Consider the fact that it was probably a four-month journey from Babylon to Jerusalem, and the terrain would have been rough. It was nearly 900 miles from Babylon to Jerusalem. Therefore, Consider the fact that there were elderly who live now, you know, of the Jewish community, perhaps sick or disabled, who may simply not have been able to make the journey, though they may have wished to do so. Or consider the fact that perhaps some of them came at a later time with Ezra or Nehemiah in the second and third returns. And so perhaps as much as they wanted to go, something hindered them, yet they were still devout in the fact that they returned later on when, uh, when, you know, time permitting or opportunity permitting, we would say. Those who remained, Cyrus encourages and invites to assist them in the cost of rebuilding the temple, as well as assisting them perhaps just in simply the cost of travel, expenses along the way, food, other perhaps gifts that they had to give to others as they made their journey back, and so Cyrus encourages them to assist them by giving gifts of silver, gold, other goods, perhaps you know food, uh, you know other things, you know perhaps that would help them travel back, as well as livestock, as well as a free will offering for the rebuilding of the temple. We'll see uh, later on in chapter 6, 4, and 5, that the cost of rebuilding the temple, get this, was in part funded by the royal Babylonian treasury. Isn't that amazing? God would work in that way to fund such uh, an important project. You know, would God allow for our nation to fund some, you know, fund some godly kind of endeavor? Not that we look, you know, not that the church is looking for the funds of our government. We trust in God's provision, but would they, you know, use those funds for something good versus some of the evils that they use it for today? The provision of gold and silver and other goods echoes the help from the Egyptians some 900 years prior. Do you remember that? As Moses leads the people out of Egypt the people of Egypt just, you know, kind of lather upon them. You know, take it, go. You know, here's silver and gold, and here's livestock and goods. And so in this way, it echoes the events of 900 years ago, as recorded in Exodus chapter 12. God, once again, providing for his people. Well, the attention shifts then to the response of God's people to Cyrus's proclamation, beginning in verse 5 and through uh, verse 11, we see the response to the proclamation. It says in verse 5, Then the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, with all whose spirits God had moved, arose to go up and build the house of the Lord which is in Jerusalem. The heads of the fathers' houses refers to the extended family standing between the larger tribe and the smaller family grouping, you know, think about, so there's, you know, the 12 tribes of Israel, but within those tribes, there was also clans and, you know, families. And so uh, it probably then refers then to a group that consisted of the patriarchal heads of each of these houses or clans that came together that represented the whole, you know, the larger tribe, whether it be the tribe of Judah or the tribe of Benjamin. Among them were also two other classes of Israelites, both priests and Levites, and we'll uh, distinguish those two later on. Exactly how they are distinguished and what that means. So we see here represented three classes of people. We see the heads of the fa- or excuse me, the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin. That's the first. We see also the priests, and then thirdly the Levites as three groups of people or three classes of people who returned. But that those classes of people are further limited to those whose spirits God moved. So it's not that all of them from these classes returned, but from them those who uh, God moved their spirits. That is then to say God called a remnant from these people to return. And he did so by stirring up their spirit, that is, to move them to action, to give them an ambition to do something, in this case, return, to go up and build the house of the Lord, just as he moved the spirit of Cyrus. But I do want to make one distinction between how God stirred up Cyrus and these people here. Um... In the case of Jews whom God stirred up, their ambition or purpose differed from Cyrus. So he stirred them up in the same kind of manner, but the motivation of the individual person was different. Cyrus's motivation was self-motivated, though God still used that. The Jews would have been motivated, however, to return as an act of obedience to the Lord. So it's still the same kind of providential work. God is still the the cause of this, but the motivations of the people are different from that of Cyrus. Of course, we see that not all Jews responded by going. Either God hadn't stirred them up, which would have been the case. So therefore, they stayed behind. While some returned, others stayed and those who stayed gave gifts and offerings to assist in the travel and the project. This, uh, as I said a moment ago, echoes um, not only uh, the Egyptians providing for the Exodus for those who left in the Exodus, but also echoes uh, the free will offerings that we see in Exodus twenty-five at the building of the of the uh, of the sanctuary, where the people of Israel gave. In fact, uh, they gave so much that they, you know, Moses, you know, stop. You know, don't, we can't use any more. And it's likely that those free will offerings, that is the contents, actually were those, you know, previously the, e- the Egyptians that they had, you know, brought along in the journey and now were offering to be used to build the sanctuary, uh, the tabernacle, that is. And so this echoes the building of the tabernacle, the sanctuary of God, As well as later on in 1 Chronicles 29, where David invites people to give a free will offering for the building of his temple as well. And so once again, God's people provide to build a temple for him. Finally, we see in uh, verses 7 to 9, the temple articles return to Jerusalem. In verses 7 through 11, it says King Cyrus also brought out the articles of the house of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken from Jerusalem when he destroyed it, which we talked about last week, and put it in the temple of his gods. So that is, Nebuchadnezzar took these articles when he destroyed Jerusalem in the temple. He brought it back to Babylon and put it in the temple of his gods. And now King Cyrus is taking these articles from these temples and allowing them to return to Jerusalem. Verse eight, it says, and Cyrus, king of Persia, brought them out by the hand of Mithridath, the treasurer, that is the treasurer of of the royal treasury, and counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. I find it interesting then that the list of articles, uh, the numbers of the articles is then listed out here. You know, what what is Ezra's point in listing this out? I think it's in part this that God uh, providentially allowed for these things to be preserved, and such detail demonstrates that that these you know weren't simply melted down and turned into you know built into other gods you know the gods of Nebuchadnezzar, but God providentially uh, you know cared for them, preserved them, and this great detail demonstrates that you know each item was accounted for, and all of these items returned to Jerusalem. The prophes- uh, And this is prophesied in Jeremiah 27, 22, that these articles would, in fact, return. And so, in a sense, then, this is the fulfillment of this prophecy. We see uh, Ezra records the, to- the sum total here. It is 5,400. Verse 11 tells us articles that returned or would return with Sheshbazar and the captives who were brought from Babylon to Jerusalem. That is the remnant, those whom God worked in moved their spirit. Now there's some question about, you know, this figure Sheshbazar, who is he? He's called the Prince of Judah. Uh, some have taken him to be this, the same person, uh, uh, we see later, uh, Uh, mention um, uh, the the man Zerubbabel, which we see in chapter 2, verse 2, but I don't think these are the same person. Uh, It seems that Sheshbazar would have been a political appointee of Cyrus to oversee Judah, to oversee this return. But the people of Israel would have seen their true leader as this man named Zerubbabel, as he was of uh, Davidic ascent, descent, and uh, he was recognized as the true leader uh, of the Israelites, and we'll talk about that later on in chapter 2. And so this man, Sheshbazar, was the prince of Judah in the fact that he was appointed by Cyrus as the political appointee, but really it was Zerubbabel who the Israelites looked to, uh, as we'll see throughout uh, the first part of Ezra. Next week, Lord willing, we'll move on to chapter 2, uh, where we'll see a list of those who returned and something interesting related to the Levites who were to serve in the house of God. But this evening, as we close, I just want to remind us of the fact that we spoke of at the very beginning, that is the truth, which is this, that God is faithful to his word. And Ezra makes clear that this is true. He emphasizes this point by kind of fronting the fact that it was God who was working in the heart of Cyrus to fulfill his promises. And he often does this through ordinary means, secondary means. And so, you know, often we look for miracles. You know, we wish God would perform a miracle. And I think that's often at the neglect of praising God and giving thanksgiving for the way in which he works through ordinary means, you know, through the physician's hands who causes you know someone's cancer to be removed, or you know uh, you know provides for you in some in some way. Yes, you know in a sense maybe you know the provision is a doctor or a job or something of that sense. But ultimately, we say God, thank you, because you are the one that has provided. You are the one who is faithful to your word, and uh, and so we must give thanks for that and follow the example of Ezra who points to God as the divine cause of these things. So let's go to the Lord in prayer this evening as we close. Heavenly Father, we ask now as we go our way that we would reflect on the words of Ezra, who is prominently put at the beginning of this record that it was God who was working through Cyrus. Lord, may we find much confidence and assurance and joy in that fact that you work and that you keep your promises, not just to the nation of Israel. Indeed, you have done that and you will do that again in the future. You will fulfill your promises to them. But Lord, that you also do that for us today in the church age. You keep your promises. You you uh, keep us securely in our hand so that we are not Uh, No one can snatch us away for those of us who are your children. You promise to sanctify us, and you will complete that when you glorify us. Lord, amidst many other promises that we might be thinking on in this moment, in which, Lord, we can rest assured that you are faithful to your word. We thank you for this. May you bless us now as we go our way. pray all these things in your Son's name. Amen.